Have you ever just stared out at the sea, watching the calm motion of the waves, and just had existential thoughts enter your mind? You know, those thoughts about what it means to be human, what your purpose is, whether or not you're on the right track in life. You know, light, easy afternoon thinking. No? Just me? Well, I was staring at the ocean the other day, or more accurately, since I live thousands of miles away from the ocean and lockdown is rough, I was staring at the Monterey Bay Aquarium coastal live feed. Uh, the sounds of the waves were gently lapping the folds of my brain when these thoughts started to creep in. And I got to thinking about how weird humankind's relationship with nature is. Like, we have this tendency to adore things in nature that are cute. Pandas, dogs, cats, seals, and don't even get me started on the unfair amount of love koalas get. The list goes on and on. We love things that are cute or otherwise incredibly aesthetically pleasing. We start funds and programs for protecting them left and right, and use them in logos and ads meant to emotionally manipulate... I mean, tug at our heartstrings. That's right, I'm calling you out, Sarah McLaughlin. And, well, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. I mean, real talk, anything that protects the biodiversity of our planet is a win. There is another problem that I think this inherently highlights. And that's that we tend to ignore at best, or actively scorn at worst, those that don't meet our complicated standards of visually pleasing. And that leaves the less-than-stunningly adorable creatures without the time or attention that they deserve to show what makes them special. And this isn't even just a problem for humans regarding animals, either. Humans do it to humans all the time, especially in modern society. We seem to have these strange, downright arcane ideals of what beauty is and try to force ourselves and others to adhere to these ideals. And once again, we ignore or actively scorn those that don't meet these standards, as impossible as that is. And I don't know about the rest of you, but I think this is a terrible detriment. You know, most people, and most creatures, have something to give. Uh, maybe a talent, maybe a way of thinking, or in the case of animals, it could be an adaption we can learn from, or even a literal chemical that we can use to keep us safe. But how will we ever know what's being offered to us if we straight up ignore it because we don't like it off gut reaction? Or worse, we just straight up destroy it or its habitat before we know a single thing about it. So. All this got me thinking, it's a long existential tangent, so thanks for bearing with me, but all this got me thinking, what lessons can we learn from nature that will help us humans as a species transcend some of these judgments that hold us back? So with that in mind, I want to talk to you today about a snail. An extraordinary slime boy, a bastion of goodness among a cold, dark sea. It's a cool tale about a creature who can stand up to pressure, who can really take the heat, and whose mere existence serves to defend the home that it loves so much. It's a tale that, I hope, by telling, will show that by looking past an undesirable exterior, you can find so, so much. So once more we go into the deep ocean to meet this armored knight living without light, and the deep sea's resident, Volcano Potato. Let's descend. Oh hey, I didn't see you there. You're listening to Biodiversity, the podcast about pelagic paradigms and coral curiosities, where we bring the best in flippin' fun fish facts straight to your ear holes. It's like we're the delivery drivers of peer-reviewed aquatic science, the grub hub of fish food for your mind, the DoorDash of dope decapods. 
Here on the show, we examine the weird, the wacky, and the wonderful diversity of life that lives under the crashing waves of our blue home. Using cutting-edge science as our guide, we dive deep into both the common and the rare, the exotic and the ugly. So tune in for the tuna, stick around for the scorpion fish, let's descend. Today on the show, the scaly foot snail, or because it's hilarious, the sea pangolin. And and I'm not even making that up either, it's actually an accepted common name for this little sack of slime. Last episode, we talked about the apex hunters that are the dragonfish, but hunting isn't the only viable lifestyle down in the deep. I mean, how boring would it be if there was only one correct way to live your life? So, while some creatures might prefer the high-octane world of hunting for their next meal, living in the thrill and the adrenaline of the hunt and the kill, others are perfectly happy to just be a couch potato, farming food and building their armored bunker against the world. So, it's time to move from hunting to farming, from swimming to sedentary, and from cold to hot, as we shift our creature feature focus back to the hydrothermal vents, the volcanoes of the deep sea. Now, before I continue, a little bit of a disclaimer here. Uh, there is a very brief discussion towards the end of the episode of certain adult snail activities. It's pretty short and doesn't go in-depth, but do please be aware if you have young ears listening and would rather not them hear. Okay, so, living among these volcanoes of the deep, we find this particularly unique species of gastropod, scientific name Chrysomelon squamiferum. Chrysomelon derives from the ancient language of the Greeks, and it means golden-haired. It was a name chosen to be reflective of how the creature sometimes incorporates pyrite into its shell. Pyrite, of course, is fool's gold, just in case your local museum or school didn't teach you. Squamiferum, on the other hand, was chosen because it sounds totally adorable. Oh, look at the little squamiferum. So cute. Who's a good little slime boy? Who's a good little slime boy? Okay, okay, that's not true. As much as I wish it were the case, squamiferum is actually Latin for scale-bearing, a reference to the appearance of armored scales that coat the soft, squishy foot of the snail that's not in the shell. Outside of these scales, the snail kind of looks like any other land snail that you might think of when the term comes up. You know, cool-looking, swirly shell, kind of slimy and squelchy-looking body. But, unlike land snails, that squishy, squelchy part, at least all of it save for the head, is covered in tons of small, overlapping plates. This gives the animal the appearance of having scales covering the lower part of its body, while its swirly shell covers the part up top. And poking out between the two is its head, with its cute little eye stalks just looking around, doing snail things. Hilariously, it's actually due to the visual similarities of these overlapping scales to the scales of the land pangolin that makes it acceptable to call this little snaily critter the sea pangolin. Ten points to the snail's cuteness score. Also, Gryffindor, because they'll feel left out if I don't. Since a visual is helpful here, I've linked a photo in the show notes and as the episode thumbnail, and you can decide what you think for yourselves. But you should leave those Ew, gross! Comments at the surface, because we don't have time for snail shaming here. Slimy is beautiful. Now, there are a few known color variations across this species. Though the body of the snail is usually red, the armor plating and shells can be either black or a dull white. Uh, These colorations seem to be linked to locality, i.e. they look a certain way depending on where the snail is found. And honestly, they haven't been found in a lot of locations. 
So far, they've only been found in three hydrothermal vent fields in the Indian Ocean, the Karai Vent Field, the Solitaire Field, and the Longqui Field. Even though this is a relatively newly described species, it is because that they are so rare to find that they are already listed as endangered on the IUCN Red List. Now, this is really important for a few reasons that we'll get into later in the episode. But first, let's talk about the incredible physiology of the armor-plated volcano night. This species was discovered in 2001, and since both its common and scientific name reference the scales of the animal, well, they must be important, right? The scales are hard and armor-like, giving the soft parts of the gastropod protection even when they're outside of the bastion that is its main shell. These scales, or plates, that cover the foot and give the snail its name are called sclerites. And land snails? They got nothing on this. Now, the presence of sclerites as a defense mechanism is atypical and cool enough, kind of like scale mail for a snail. But this pinnacle of slime evolution doesn't stop at just any old scales. No, 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 they do you one better, as the construction of both the sclerites and the snail's shell is metal as hell. No, no, wait, hold up, stop the music, stop. Sorry, sorry, I got the inflection wrong there. I I meant that literally. The snail's shell and its host of sclerites are literally made with metal. You know, like the stuff cars, forks, knives, weapons, buildings, skillets, washing machines, tools, wiring, and like, a lot of human inventions are made out of. Yeah, that stuff. The snail's armor is made of metal. Research into the composition of the shell of the scaly foot discovered that this animal actually incorporates iron sulfides into both its shell and its sclerites. This mineralization of the armor with iron is something as of yet unseen in any other aquatic species and makes this snail one extremely tough nut to crack. And, just because I know you were wondering, no, science hasn't answered the question of whether or not you could pass a magnet over the snail and lift it up. And yes, this is 100% something I want to try if ever given the opportunity, so let me in on the next study, scientists. Most shells that you're familiar with, like the ones that you find on long walks on the beach, are constructed of some form of calcium carbonate, which by itself offers quite a lot of protection, and most mollusks and other creatures with shells call that good enough. But this heavily armored slime tank wasn't satisfied with that, no, 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 no. It would stop at nothing less than creating a super armor. And the evolutionary end result is something that even the U.S. military has taken an interest in. Earlier, I said that the snail incorporates metal into its shell, not that it was entirely made of this stuff. Metal helps, but there's more to it than that. The shell is actually made up of three distinctly different layers that all work together to create a barrier that even the toughest of predators can't break. And it's the interplay between the structure-slash-arrangement of these layers with the materials that they're made of that becomes the super armor. So let's break it down. Starting closest to the snail's main body, the innermost layer is typical of what we see in other mollusks being made of aragonite, which is a form of calcium carbonate. You know, that same thing that most other shells are made out of. Aragonite is tough on its own, and works for a lot of other creatures, so the squamiferous squiggly snail kept that part as is. For the most part. 
Building on top of that, it does something that both land snails and clams do. They build a layer of protein that scientists call a periostracum. In land snails, the periostracum is frequently called the animal's skin, as it is the outermost layer. It's usually comprised of a protein called conchiolin, but that's not really the important bit. The important bit is that most mollusks with the periostracum use this skin as scaffolding, or a framework of sorts, upon which more shell can be built. This allows more shell to be built or repaired over the course of the shelled creature's lifetime. So, the land snails and clams are mollusks that stop there, at two layers. But not our main snail, Chrysomelon. It adds a third layer on top of all of that. And that third layer is the iron layer, the big ol' snail plate mail. By utilizing the iron sulfides that are being spewed out in rapid force from the hydrothermal vents upon which it lives, it builds this outermost layer of iron armor. Now, this layer isn't super thick, it's on average only about 30 micrometers, but when you're reinforced with iron, you don't need to be especially thick. Oh, and that's just the shell. The hundreds of little armored sclerites are quite similar in construction, too. They're also composed of three layers, though instead of a calcium carbonate inner core, it's epithelial tissue. You know, the same kind of tissue that makes up human skin in part. So, to review, the shell goes calcium carbonate, protein, mineralized iron, and the sclerite plates go epithelial tissue, protein, mineralized iron. Got it? Good. So, one could take a look at this tri-layered structure and think that the snail's superior defense comes from adding the separate defense scores of each layer together. But <laughs> boy, is it ever more than just simple addition. Researchers in 2010 looked at the mechanical strengths of how the shell was all cobbled together, and they did so by applying force to the shell with a diamond tip of an instrument. And by doing so, they were able to measure force across the shell and see how the force was displaced. They found that each of these three layers contributes differently, both by itself and in conjunction with the others, to the armor's overall effectiveness. So let's take it from the top, the iron sulfide layer. Remember, it's pretty thin, but it doesn't mean that it's not super defensive. Not only is this layer strong and resilient because it's metal, it's also perfectly engineered at the microscopic level to reduce damage. Scientists using electron microscopes found that the microscopic structure of the layer, when subjected to force that might otherwise crack it, was able to disperse the damage into what they termed sacrificial microcracks around the iron sulfide particles that help make up the layer. So, let's say that there's a particularly strong crab looking to break through the layer, and it clamps down hard on the shell. What this means is that instead of giving way and developing a large crack along the shell where it was clamped, the damage is distributed and localized into little, smaller spider webbing cracks near the impact site that are way more manageable. These little microcracks willingly take the force of the assault to ensure that the overall layer doesn't break. It's a sacrifice to the shell integrity to be sure, as having spider webbing microcracks all across the shell does weaken it but it's way better than being split wide open and becoming a meal. Moving down, we arrive at the thickest layer, the periostracum. This layer is pliable in nature, kind of squishy and springy, being made of protein. Because of this, the periostracum filling of the shell sandwich acts as a shock absorber. To anybody who's ridden a bike with or without shocks, you kind of know just how much force a shock absorber can reduce, and this biological absorber does its job marvelously. 
Take that crab scenario again. As the claw crunches down, even if it doesn't break through the iron, the force of that crush doesn't just stop at the iron layer. Some of it does get transferred down through to this protein layer. This force can still be very dangerous. Just because the outer iron layer doesn't crack doesn't mean that the inner, more vulnerable calcium carbonate shell won't crack from significant force, or worse yet, the snail's soft, vulnerable body. This is where the periostracum does its job. All that claw-crushing pressure is put upon the springy protein layer, where it is absorbed, distributed, and relieved. Even the heat generated from such a forceful attack can be dispersed throughout this layer. So it is that most, if not all, of the shock from such an attack is dissipated between the outer layer and this one. This is incredibly important, because it has been recorded that some crabs will keep up an attack on the snail for several days. Trying and trying and trying to reach a meal, the crab will just crush down on the shell. Meanwhile, the snail doesn't feel a darn thing. And that's not all the periostracum layer does. Remember that it also serves as a template or a scaffold of sorts to build new shell, but it is also theorized that it can act as protection from the harsh corrosive chemicals commonly dissolved in the waters around the hydrothermal vents, or, in a more extreme scenario, protect them from chemicals secreted by animals that might try to bore into the shell to get to the snail. So, in essence, the middle layer is just a big old elastic sponge that acts as a building template, shock absorber, and chemical PPE. Finally, we reach the inner calcified shell layer, the last bastion of defense. If any mechanical energy from an attack reaches through the top two layers, the wall of aragonite stands in the way from that force reaching the snail. All three layers of the shell act in concert to protect the vulnerable squishy part, and they do so marvelously. Oh, and just in case you were wondering, the foot-armoring sclerites aren't exactly a weak point, either. The snail can retract into the shell, ducking its vulnerable head away between the protection of the shell up top and from below with the covering of sclerites. We don't have a lot of data regarding the sclerites specifically, but with similar composition and function, and the strength in numbers, it isn't hard to imagine the great defense that they themselves put up. This crazy cobbled-together layer structure of breathtaking materials is the precise reason that the U.S. military has taken an interest in this particular snail at the bottom of the sea. Statements from 2010 mentioned they were trying to replicate these kinds of mechanics in order to create better armor for soldiers and vehicles. That way, when the crab aliens from Groupulon 6 finally attack, our tanks will be very well equipped to handle the force of their crush claws. Thanks, Mr. Snail. If all that wasn't crazy enough, the snail is also just one big old giant teddy bear. They're like that friend of yours, you know the one, who's all buff and muscly, maybe kind of scary looking, but the minute that you talk to them, you realize they just have the biggest heart and are the nicest person. You know, if I had to personify this scaly foot snail, that'd be my go-to image. The world's goodest snail may look creepy, but they really just want everybody to get along. And I can even say that scientifically, because the snail doesn't really hunt or kill, and it has one of the biggest hearts in all of the animal kingdom. Well, at least in terms of percentage. Researchers in 2015 investigated the snail's heart, and found that it comprised a whopping 4% of the animal's overall volume. Now, that may not sound like a lot, yet when you look at it in terms of comparison to other animals, it's downright huge. Us humans only average around 1.3% heart by volume. 
That means, by actual not-made-up scientific fact or even more not-made-up math, that even the Grinch would have only a heart-to-body volume of 1.625% after his heart grows three times on Christmas. That's not even half the size of the scaly foot snail. Just saying. In fact, the whole circulatory system is bigger than other comparative gastropods. Even its gill structures are supersized. The proportionally large heart and gills have been thought to have some very important purposes, too. So, first up, it helps oxygenate the animal. Honestly, one of the primary purposes of any circulatory system. The large heart and large gills give the animal a surplus of oxygen to work with. We haven't talked much about how gills work on the show, but just like the big ol' free-swimming fish, the scaly foot breathes by the utilization of gills. At a most basic level, gills work by kind of pulling oxygen from the water. Think of the gill like a membrane. On one side, the snail's blood inside the body, and on the other side, water outside the body. This creates a gradient. The outside water has high oxygen content when compared to the low oxygen blood on the other side of the gill. And because oxygen naturally flows from high concentration to low, the oxygen is pulled from being dissolved in the surrounding water and into being dissolved in the low oxygen blood. The gills rely on that gradient of high oxygen to low being constant. After all, if the concentrations of oxygen in the blood and the water ever equal out, the exchange stops and the animal would no longer be getting oxygen. It would suffocate. So, in order to maintain the gradient optimally, the blood and the water need to be flowing in opposite directions. The water flow is easy. Animals usually have a mechanism to constantly pass water over the gills, be that a literal pump, by constantly swimming, or hanging out in the current. But what is it that passes that never-ceasing supply of low-oxygen blood to the gills? You know, a pump of sorts? Maybe one that pumps blood? It's the heart. Guess what? It's the heart. Nailed it. The larger heart is more efficient at pumping blood, so when you put it all together, you get a large, efficient heart pumping blood that supports a big surface area of gills, all adding up to more and more oxygen for the animal. And the blood, pumped by the strong heart, then carries this freshly obtained oxygen everywhere else that it is needed in the body. But why? Why does the majestic sea pangolin need all of this oxygen? Other mollusks can easily get by without such a large heart or crazy gill structures, so what's the point here? Part of it, of course, is that hydrothermal vents aren't exactly the highest in oxygen content environments in the world, so being efficient at this extraction is good. But that's not all there is to the story. The scaly foot snail isn't just supporting itself with all this oxygen. The oxygen, and indeed the whole improved circulatory system, is also playing another very important role all to make the snail be a protective, armored sailing ship for bacteria. That's right, multiple species of bacteria are kind of like sailors, inhabiting the body of the snail as they cast about into the dark and endless sea. If you listen to our episode on yeti crabs, you're already familiar with the idea of an animal farming its own food source in bacteria. Uh, Minor spoiler alert for that episode, but the central gist is that the animal in question helps the bacteria grow and proliferate, which helps the bacteria as a species thrive, in exchange for eating some of them whenever it feels a bit peckish. Seems fair, right? These bacteria have the ability to process the toxic chemical slurry that spews out the volcanoes and turn it into energy, an ability that the snail lacks. So, the snail derives its energy from eating the bacteria after the chemicals have been converted to food. 
The more and more we look into the deep sea and its habitats, the more and more we see this strategy being fairly common. Though, unlike other animals that utilize this strategy as a supplement to a more varied diet, it has been noted that the bacteria are likely all that this snail eats. They're not hunting, they're not feeding on corpses, they're just farming peacefully. Aside from that, the other key difference between the yeti crab and the snail is where the bacteria are grown, and this ends up being pretty key. Remember how I said that these bacteria make their own food by using the hydrogen sulfide and other toxic chemicals being spewed out at the hydrothermal vent? This is called chemoautotrophy, and it relies on the bacteria actually having access to that hydrogen sulfide slurry and having it kind of be slopped on top of them. You know, the yeti crab, they have it easy. The bacteria are farmed outside the body on the body hairs, so just waving the bacteria through the chemically saturated waters is enough. But the snail does things differently. In fact, it grows the bacteria inside its body. So with a whole dang snail in the way, how do bacteria get their toxic energy drinks? Once again, the enlarged circulatory system comes to the rescue. Each snail has this enlarged esophageal gland that acts as a pouch of sorts that stores and grows the bacteria. Esophageal glands are a naturally occurring part of the digestive system of most animals, including both humans and gastropods, but growing bacteria for consumption in one is pretty unique. It has advantages, sure, being able to protect those bacterial colonies from any outside threats, but it runs into a unique issue. That, of course, being a snail in the way of the oxygen and the hydrogen sulfide and the other chemicals that the bacteria actually need to grow. And once again, we see the purpose of the enlarged heart and circulatory system as it once again springs into action, acting as a delivery system for all the dissolved gases and chemicals that a growing bacterial colony needs. So that's why some researchers think that the snail needs all this extra oxygen. It's really not just supporting itself, it's delivering it to the growing bacteria in its little bacteria pouch. The heart has got to work extra hard to make sure that all the little buggies can breathe too. It's also theorized that these same delivery mechanisms are the route that the bacteria get their hydrogen sulfide. You know, just snails passing toxic chemicals through their cardiovascular system like it's no big deal. I wonder if all the bacteria can be claimed as dependents on the snail's taxes. <laughs> Between the large heart and the crazy armor, this means that, for all practical purposes, the snail is pretty self-sufficient. For it, Home is literally where the heart is. Oh, and food isn't the only thing that the snail uses bacteria for. Some papers theorize that certain other epibiotic bacteria are part of, if not the reason for, the mineralization process of the shell and the sclerites. So, basically, the snail's mere existence extols the virtues of working together to overcome harsh obstacles. Or, at least that's what I like to think and you can't convince me otherwise. Snaily scale is bestest snail. Don't you forget it. There's one thing, though, that Lord Armorshell Heavy Boots may not be self-sufficient on. Mating. Full disclosure, not a whole heck of a lot seems to be known about the mating habits and life cycle here, but what we do know is that the animal is a simultaneous hermaphrodite. They are both male and female at the same time. More scientifically, this means that it has the organs and produces the gametes of both sexes simultaneously. Among the currently studied specimens, it has been noted that some animals have further developed one of the gendered organs over the other, though they were always both present. 
In other animals, simultaneous hermaphrodism means that it could be possible to reproduce asexually, fertilizing itself to produce offspring, as well as sexually, to help ensure that sweet, sweet genetic diversity. But we really don't know if the snail uses one of these strategies or both. We just know that they have both parts. Interestingly, though, a few papers have demonstrated that the animal has no copulatory organ whatsoever, though there is a genital opening, so exactly how the exchange of genetic material between the two individuals would happen is somewhat of a mystery. On top of that, absolutely nothing is known about the eggs or the larval stages of the snail. It's only theory at this point. Damn it, science, if you can't bring me the answers I want about snail sex, then what good are you? Why, uh, yeah, uh, I have half a mind to fully support your studies and lobby hard for more funding for the advancement of science. No respect, no respect. There's one last thing to discuss when it comes to the scaly foot. This episode is called The Volcano Night, and I hope that by now those reasons are pretty obvious. What with the living on an undersea volcano, being clad in armor, and whatnot. But... We can't just call any old schmuck who puts on armor a true knight. Knights have a certain reputation, after all. Upholders of the tenets of loyalty, compassion, and justice, the romanticized knight is truly an inspiration for those around them. But by comparison, the lazy slime farmer seems pretty far off, huh? I mean, as long as it has a supply of swirly deep-sea chemicals and oxygenated water, it can produce its own food and create nigh-on-impregnable armor— without moving much. Thanks to that armor, it doesn't have to do much if it's attacked, it just kind of sits there and takes it until the predator gets bored and leaves. It's pretty chill, even for a snail. So, how does that earn the snail its knighthood? Well, even just living its best snail life, it defends its home from foreign invaders. You see, the hydrothermal vents and fields that the brave knight Squamiferum calls its home are under both threat and siege. And the offending invaders? Us. Humans. We're the bad guys. The threat is very real, and very near. The seabed, the muck on the ocean floor, and all these vent ecosystems are a treasure trove of biological life. But they're also a treasure trove of another kind. Precious metals. The minerals and metals that make up the seafloor and help contribute to the intense physics and chemical slurries of the deep-sea ecosystems are chock-full of metals like copper, nickel, aluminum, lithium, and others. And our terrestrial sources of these are running out. In order to keep production of smartphones, laptops, aluminum cans, batteries, and so many products moving, several companies have set their sights on the seafloor. There are already proposals for test runs of huge drilling rigs and collectors to be used non-selectively to sweep the seafloor for metals, destroying habitat, causing incredible chemical noise and light pollution. Even one exploratory drilling operation could potentially fracture an ecosystem for good. And many of these companies, they're aiming to do it soon, before any laws can put a stop to them. In fact, Exploratory drilling has already been performed, and it could be scheduled to give way to full commercial exploitation between now and 2025. But a ray of hope shines through the abyssal darkness, and it comes in snail form. Because of the efforts of devoted scientists and passionate people, 
the rare scalyfoot snail was listed as endangered by the IUCN in 2019. It's a surprisingly difficult feat to do normally, and doubly so here due to the lack of knowledge about the creature's range and status. But after lobbying and petitioning, and ironically because of the future threat of deep sea mining, the snail squiggled its way onto the list. Unfortunately, it is only a small victory, the listing doesn't do much in and of itself. The snail is not officially protected under any law, but it's a small armored sparkle in the deep that gets the ball rolling. According to Lisa Levin, a biologist at Scripps Institution of Oceanography, the listing was an important step to alerting policymakers about the potential impacts of these kinds of operations. Chong Chen, a deep sea biologist at the Japan Agency for Marine Earth Science and Technology, agrees saying that simply being on the list means something to both policymakers and ordinary people. It's the first step to getting this particular species protected by law, and because of this classification, scientists are now assessing the status of other deep-sea animals the world over. The hope, in the mind of many marine biologists and myself, if I'm honest, is that this path is a path forward to protecting these incredible ecosystems, and might potentially even straight up outlaw mining operations at hydrothermal vent sites. It's a long way off, and there's a lot of work to be done to get there, but we stand on the precipice of being able to make a choice. Oftentimes, in ocean conservation, we seem to be trying to figure out how to correct damages that we've already caused, but here, we stand at the cusp of disaster and have a real opportunity to prevent catastrophic damage from happening in the first place. To do so, we'll need more science, better environmental impact studies, and overwhelming citizen and business support. In fact, there's already calls for a moratorium on all deep-sea mining practices while we spend the time to better understand the ecosystems and creatures, like the Scalyfoot, that live there. Dr. Sylvia Earle, Sir David Attenborough, and organizations like the World Wildlife Fund are among several voices that are calling for at least a 10-year moratorium. And these movements seem to actually be gaining some traction. Huge players in the metal markets have begun to take notice. As recently as March 31st, 2021, four major companies, Google, Volvo, Samsung, and BMW, have all signed on to an agreement not to source any of the metals for their products from deep-sea sources. These huge company decisions show that industry, even industry giants, can be committed to a healthier, more sustainable way of doing things. That's super important, because like it or not, industry and larger corporations are here to stay. But with the right leadership and mindsets, they can wield their power towards a more sustainable future instead of one that destroys our natural resources without a second thought. That kind of mindset is going to be needed from our world's leaders if we wish to protect the realm in which the Scalyfoot snail lives. It's alien and a bit frightening, but it is also fragile and beautiful and every bit worth protecting. And nobody, right now, could be a better or more fitting defender. So I'm asking you, please, let's prevent this disaster from happening. Like the bacteria that help build the snail's armor, let's work together to be the desperately needed shield for the seafloor. Together, let's stand on the side of justice and chivalry, and on the side of the valiant protector of these lands, the brave Volcano Knight.
That's going to do it for today's episode of Biodiversity. Awareness of these cool creatures of the deep and the issues that they're facing is the first step to combating their potential overexploitation. So, in that vein, our big-hearted snail friends of the deep have a challenge for you. They told me that they'll knight you as an honorary volcano knight if you do some online searching for a cool creature of the deep and tell some people about it. Trust me, you'll be a hit at parties if you won't shut up about deep sea fish. It's currently rated third on the list of most popular party topics, and that's a not-made-up science fact. In fact, I made great friends with the last party's dog just by telling them about giant tube worms. Alright, fine, maybe don't be annoying about it. But what you can do is find out what makes your creature cool, and share what you find on social media. If you tag the podcast Biodiversity with what you find, we'll officially declare your knighthood to the world. Or at least everyone who follows this podcast. And hey, if enough of you participate, I'll even do an on-air special bonus episode to declare your knighthood. You can find the podcast handle at Flippin' Fun Fish Facts on Instagram or Facebook, and at handle Flippin' Fun Fish on Twitter. And hey, if you just so happen to be in a position within your own industry where you can have these conversations about where you source your materials, maybe bring it up. Industry giants like Google have had the conversation, and you don't want to be one-upped by Google, do you? I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Until next we meet, remember that if the scaly foot snail can pull off being kind, brave, and beautiful, then so can you. Stay awesome, my fellow ocean nerds. I'll see you next time. <laughs>